this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to an episode of the New Books and Literary Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Britt Edelin, and today I am joined by Rachel Zolf. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Britt. It's great to have you here. Um, So Rachel um, is an artist, a poet who's Um, quoting directly from their website, whose interdisciplinary practice explores questions about history, knowledge, subjectivity, responsibility, and the limits of language, meaning, and the human. Um, And we're going to talk about all of that as we discuss their their new book out through Duke University Press. Um, It's called No One's Witness, A Monstrous Poetics. Um, It's a great book. I, I loved it so much, and I'm so excited to talk about it with you today. Um, so Rachel, as we, as we begin this interview, I want to ask about, um, the book's origins, um, but mainly, or not mainly also your origins. How did you come to this position of thinking? What's your background? And then how did you get into writing this specific text? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm a poet, um, and I guess this book we're talking about, no one, no one's witness. It's, it's just like, it's like my seventh book. And so it's 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 kind of a, a culmination of my thinking as a writer and maker over the past 25 or so years. And I mean, there's there's so much thinking that goes into our creative practices, like so much and, and for poets in particular, so much thinking about what language can and cannot do. And only some of it can come through in a book of poems or, or even several books. So I wanted to write down in a, in a prose form um, some of my thinking on, on making on, on poesis, which means making right? and on becoming, which is um, you know, something I've thought about forever. And so I've always been a, a theory nerd. Um, I find, you know, reading good theory kind of more interesting than even like reading most poetry, for example. <laughs> and um, I'm also a bit of an autodidact. So like a number of Canadian poets, including like Lisa Robertson and Aaron Murray, I don't, I don't have a BA um, or standard academic trajectory, um, but all of my books have been 
informed by my study of various theoretical works. So I actually consider No One's Witness like a poem. Like a, it's a kind of poem for me, even though an earlier version of it fulfilled the parameters of my PhD dissertation at the European Graduate School, which is a school for theory nerds and, and some autodidacts. Um, so where I went so that I could write this book and, and get an accreditation that could help me find work, blah, blah, blah. But um, I'm not I'm kind of not interested in genre distinctions or academic hierarchies. I just sort of wrote the book I needed to write. And every book I write, every project I undertake is very different from the one before in, in form, generally, though linked in terms of the trajectory of my thinking. So I'm always trying out new things, like in my last project, um, Janie's Arcadia, I, I made not just a book of poetry, but I made a film and a sound performance and these poly, polyvocal political actions and charged spaces in relation to settler colonialism in North America, particularly Canada. So no one's witness is very different from my other projects, but it's also of a piece with them. And, and you know, as I said, I wanted to write down in a prose form some of my thinking on making, on, on poesis and on becoming. And the conduit for me was my relation to three lines that end a poem by Romanian Jewish Nazi Holocaust survivor Paul Celan. And one translation of which is uh, into English is no one bears witness for the witness. So the standard meaning of these three lines is that no one can or should bear witness for the witness, you know, that it's impossible to bear witness for the dead, which is, which is a standard truism of thinking about the Nazi Holocaust. But when I first read these three lines long ago, I thought I thought of no one as a kind of figure or a non-figure who actually does bear witness for the witness. And um, I was just I've been puzzled by the conundrum for like 10 years. So, I, you know, and, I, and, and I've been and at the same time, because I, I've been interested in around that or longer um, in the in the figure of the Muslim man, um, which translates as Muslim, um, which is a figure uh, from the Nazi camps. It was basically, uh, you know, a prisoner, um, generally Jewish, who's supposedly um, living dead, you know, um, not like a zombie, but kind of, but a, a being who like, theorist Giorgio Gombin deemed was a complete, he called, he called that being a complete witness to the camp experience because they had lost all spark of life and could not speak or bear witness. So they, they the witnesses in, in his formulation is a person who can't or the figure who can't bear witness. So I believe that this thinking was flawed and, and that it was possible to bear witness under extreme subjection, but that the witnessing may not be immediately intelligible um, in standard language forms. And, and so I struggled for a long time to think through how to theorize the speech of this no one figure, the speech of the Jewish Muslim. And I had a breakthrough when I read Alex Wahelier's book, Habeas Viscus, uh, Racializing Assemblages, Biopolitics, and Black Feminist Theories of the Human in which Wahelia draws the Muslim man into the realm of Hortense Spiller's black, notion of black flesh. It speaks and weeps and binds people together. So I, d I decided to write a book that went beyond the kind of the tired notions of the Nazi Holocaust as an exceptional event, or a, or a book that honored black studies, of how, how black studies has always confronted the ongoing, not exceptional or one-time disasters of this world, particularly transatlantic slavery and its afterlives amid ongoing col colonialism. So I took each word in the three lines of Salans as a jumping off point to think about no one as a figure beyond the cliched notions of the poetry witness and beyond the tired binary of I and you, um, the ethical I and you, to think of no one as a possible place of speech that was not one, but plural, not centered on the self, a becoming otherwise that performed impossible acts, not constantly producing connection and change. So in this journey, I was really influenced by the work of black theorists like Fred Moten and Denise Ferreira da Silva, whose work is all about undoing the self and connecting across difference. So the book is in many ways an homage to Black thought and 
As part of that homage, I use a method of layered quotations from the theorists that influenced me. I really like that you are referring to this, um, your book, which reads like theory, but it also reads like a poem and you're calling it a poem. Um, and you, you do that throughout the book. Um, it makes me think of when Wittgenstein says, you know, philosophy ought to be written as jokes. I think I, I think philosophy ought to be written as poetry. And I think I'm a theory nerd and the theory that I'm always drawn to is philosophy. I mean, not philosophy. It's like written like poetry. It's, it's beautiful. Um, and it does something in its beauty. And on the topic of, of poems, um, before we get into a more detailed discussion, I'd like to read the, the Ceylon poem from which you draw your title. Um, Can I just say something? Yeah. Wittgenstein actually said that philosophy should be written as poetry. He actually said that. It's in my book. Oh. <laughs> as a poetic composition. So there you go. There you, oh, my gosh. Oh, of, I'm totally yeah. fusing two quotations of him. <laughs> yeah, I'm, it's okay. Because he said... You could write philosophy, an entire philosophy out of jokes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You got so would, it. So would Freud say that too? So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Go ahead. no, it's good. Wittgenstein already said it. I'm not a big Wittgenstein person. So it's fine. Whatever. Nor am I. Um, <laughs> thank you for correcting that. Um, there are a lot of Wittgensteinians here at, at Duke and I, I don't want to upset them. But we'll, we'll read the poem. Um, edit that out. Edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that can't, that, I don't want that following me around anywhere. Um, we'll read the poem um, and I'll read it. Um, I always think, I mean, when poetry is in translation, I, I do think there's some kind of responsibility to the original, but the German, um, especially with Paul Ceylon, what he's doing with the language, I, I always think you, ha you have to have some recourse to the original. Um, so I'll read the original German and then we'll have you read it in translation. Um, I'm not sure who has the translation in the in the appendix of your book, whether it's Hamburger or Joris. I'm assuming it's Joris, yeah. Joris. Okay. Yeah. A great translator. Um yeah. one of the one of the better ones, I would say. Yeah. Um, um so here is um in the German Aschenglory Aschenglory hinter deinen erschüttert wegnoteten Heinden am Dreiweg. Pontisches einstmals hier ein Tropfen auf dem ertrunkenen Ruderblatt tief im versteinerten Schwör rauscht es auf auf dem senkrechten Atemzähl damals höre als oben zwischen zwei Schmerzknoten während der blanke Tatarenmond zu uns heraufklomm rub ich mich in dich und in dich. Aschenglory, hinter euch drei Weg hinden, das vor euch vom Osten her, hin gewürfelte, furchtbar. Niemand zeugt für den Zeugen. Okay, so the translation, the Zoris translation I'm going to read is from Breath Turn into Timestead, the collected later poetry that came out a couple years ago, because his translations keep changing. So mm -hmm. this is the one he he sat with for this book, the latest book. Ash glory behind your shaken, knotted hands at the three-way. Pontic erstwhile, here, a drop on the drowned rudder blade. Deep in the petrified oath, it roars up on the vertical 
breath rope in those days, higher than above, between two pain knots while the glossy Tatar moon climbed up to us. I dug myself into you and into you, ash, glory behind, you three-way hands. The cast in front of you from the east, terrible, no one bears witness for the witness. So it's, that's, it's a great poem. Um, and I, I remember reading it for the first time in a Ceylon class that I took a few, like four years ago. And it's like all of his poems, it's something that you have to sit with and it's, it's hard to understand. And I think that's kind of part of the point. Um, and it, it screws with language in, in lots of different ways. And, and poetry is, is made of language. It's what we pay attention to. Um, and I think Ceylon, who wrote in many different languages, was very aware of the different ways that things could be translated. He was a translator himself um, and how the translations bring out different things in the original. Um, so I, I want to start off by talking about those last three lines and kind of how they relate to witnessing and and testimony and what it means, um, because in the original German, um, we have these things that you're you're working with. So, well, starting with the word niemand, um, it's a it's you t- you say it's an impossible to translate word um, because in English, it's it's it can be no one. Um, it's been rendered no space one. You translate it and say capital N no capital O. One um, and there's a, an erosion of the self, and then in the other, it's not the other most important word, but it, it's an important word. Zoiked, um, witness. You have, um, you have the term zoiked or zoigen, which means to produce or to beget, um, and then to bear witness or to witness. There, there are different ways to translate that, um, and then we also have the word testimony that comes up. Um, kind of in a related term where you're drawing out the idea of testimony as having a third as being related to testis, which is and, and the masculine or the male, as well as um, terstis and these, this turning and the torsion of the words. Um, so I'm wondering how can we draw out these topics just from a, a linguistic standpoint? <laughs> My- um. Yeah, I mean, I guess Derrida uh, says these three lines resist even the best translation. And I think I op- opened the book with quoting that pretty early on. And it's, um, you know, like the best poetry. So so for me, Salon, um, you know, his, the, I, I actually didn't read a lot of Salon scholarship. I used to read it more. I'm just, I'm personally not interested in, Figuring out, like, I'm, I'm not a new critic. I, I'm not interested in figuring out each association, <laughs> which, you know, where it fits in his biography. Like, I'm interested in what he does with language. I'm interested in how he breaks the German language, mm-hmm. like, like in, you know, in his own mother tongue, but it's not as much, you know, it's, it's, he's other in that mother tongue. And so I'm interested in his neologisms, which is common, you know, his new words that he creates, um, which there's examples of in this book. But so for me, um, you know, jumping off what I kind of already said around Niemand, like I, that I, when I first read it, because in German um, nouns are capitalized, I mean, it does happen that because it's at a new stanza and the end of, of Niemand, 
and no one is capitalized. But even if it was actually in the middle of this of this of the line, it would be capitalized because it's a noun in German. And um, because I, I'm and you know I I usually confess I'm I don't know German hardly at all. I'm not I'm not a German scholar. And it's kind of ironic that um, they uh, the state the Library of Congress or whoever. <laughs> categorize this book as like German literature or something. And I'm like, I, I asked them to change it and they wouldn't change it. It's like, I, it's, you know what I mean? Like as if this was like a literary, um, you know, oh, poem, yeah. poem on Salon. German and literature. Yeah. 20th it's century like, history and criticism. That's it's, yeah. That's yeah. it's going to be in the stacks at, you know, at, the, at your local, <laughs> your local academic library. Anyway. Um, so for me, so it wasn't, wasn't like um, normal for me to see like nouns capitalized. Right. Cause I'm not, German, I think it's, it's not normal. Anyway, whatever. So when I saw Niemand and, and then the translation, no one, um, it just, you know, it, it conjured this figure. And um, when a, a German speaker friend of mine helped me translate the three lines, you know, we just, we had a conversation about this years ago, just going back and forth all over all the associations of the lines. And I remember she said something very beautiful. She said like that it, it kind of translates as like no one who ever exists and who was present for that non-existence. And she said, nobody is there. And that, that's just, that's kind of just lovely for me because I'm, that's the kind of thing I'm interested in. I mean, I'm, I, so I'm interested in this, um, no one who, who bears witness or gives witness, but, but erodes its witness at the same time. Like I, I'm personally not interested a lot in the poetry of witness or poetics of witness or, or witnessing like because it's so loaded. Like that's why I worked on this book for so long or thinking about it for so long. Cause I didn't want to do the same old book on, you know, Holocaust witnessing or Holocaust exceptionalism. I, I just, I, you know, I, I literally couldn't bear it. And um, so that's why the, the Wahelia book was a really important turn for me into thinking about um, extreme sub- subjection across, across race, across culture, across class. Um, so in terms of the translation, I do try to, you know, I touch on as much as I can in the book. I do, I touch on it over and over again. Like I, I used to have even more, um, like when you got to the no one chapter, like in the table of contents, I, I had it, I think I had it like no one slash nobody slash no one noon, but you know, slash, and then with witness, I put testifies, right? Like I put all the different versions, but I, you actually can't, can't hold the different versions. It's, it's actually, you know, it's, it's literally untranslatable in, in some ways. Um, and that's what I love. I'm, I'm interested in things like that. I'm interested in limit concepts. I mean, that's 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 the key interest for me in witnessing. As a, like, I feel like it's like like my last uh, two book two books ago was about um, uh, Palestine, Israel. Like a, it, was a, it was a book about that. I wrote that and I published it in 2010. And the, the, kind of, the sort of limit concept of that book was was was, was the neighbor. So the so the notion of the neighbor as a kind of limit concept, like like you you reach a a place where um, you can't, um, you know, hold all the different possibilities of it. That's where I got into the third. But anyway, here I feel like witnessing like like sovereignty or forgiveness or, you know, so I'm a very much a Derridian. So it's like I'm, I'm interested in these terms that, that you know, what I mean, that 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 you that you can just keep unraveling, you can keep just deconstructing and they will never give you a final a final answer. So I don't have a, a final answer. And I, and, and I take a lot of um uh, you know, what's the word? I, I do a lot of iterations here, right? Because like, for example, Zoigt, which I'll do with a Yiddish accent, Zoigt, <laughs> Zoigt, anyway, um, you know, is, 
I, you know, in the bear chapter, I, I, it's interesting that it's translated as bear witness in some translations, right? Because then it's bearing. And so then I, I took the kind of bearing, like the, the, which is different than fathering, begetting, right? In the German. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, again, this book isn't really about Salon, like it is, of course, because I'm very influenced by Salon. But, but no, I, I'm taking the Zoic into bearing because that's where the translation, I, like I had to start from the translation because I'm an English speaker, you know, English I mean, I know French, but I, I don't know German. So, um, so that, uh, so yeah, you see, like, I, I like that. I mean, you know, I bet, I don't know, maybe Salon would hate it if I, if I uh, went into bearing and, and the, and the, you know, I think he would love it. Yeah. Yeah. So that, you know, that's, and for me, I, I'm also along the Derrida lines with four. I think the four is the most interesting uh, word in that translation. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I devoted, you know, chapter to sort of unpacking what, what it means to speak in the place of, which is what so much of, you know, of, you know, appropriative uh, practices have done or, and, and, and witnessing is, is uh, poetic. So poetry of witness has, has been guilty of this a lot. So I wanted to undo that a little bit and think about speaking in the face of, but the person, you know, the figure doesn't have to have a, a face, a face, I, I, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I'm thinking philosophically, but, but that idea of just, of being, of, of, what Andrea Geyer, the person who has translated this with me, said, like, you know, no one who is present for that existent, non-existence, um, really, it just really spoke to me in terms of trying to think through the Muslim man. Like, have you ever been interested in the Muslim man as a figure? Like, it's it's a, it's like, there's not much written, or there's more written about it now, but there wasn't when I started. And Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've read a lot about the Muslim man figure. Um, and, I mean, I I'm... I'll confess I'm a Derridian as well. Um, and the, there's the way he kind of deconstructs or like almost destroys Agamben's theory, like within one sentence. And I, I can't remember what book it's in, but it's in his critique of homo soccer. And I think there's something so interesting that you can, you can do with, um, I think the figure of the Musulman as it is brought out in you know, in Levy or in Agamben in the sense, and, and you do it in your book of, you know, why the Muslim? Why there's no, there's no regard for how that term is being deployed um, in the sense, I mean, surely they, they didn't have the same Islamophobia in 1940 that we experience now, but there's still an othering involved. And it, it's this, odd moment of othering someone within a camp of all these others and how how that comes to be um well i I mean i think they had like islamophobia in the sense of from a colonial mindset right the Mm -hmm. european white supremacist mindset of conquering the world right including the east Mm -hmm. so the so and all beings um outside of the white world are lesser beings right so Mm -hmm. so when the human, you know, which is again a figure I'm, I'm not interested in. Like I, that was, the human is like the central figure of, you know, white European colonialism, um, is uh, undone, right? Destroyed in the camps. Then the human becomes one of these less than human figures. Like I, I, I can see the logic for them, you know. Um, but it is, I don't know, I just found it fascinating that in all the, you know, reams and thousands and thousands 
<laughs> tomes on the Holocaust and on, uh, you know, um, there's just, there hasn't been very much about, about the, it's just part of how, it's part of, and, you know, a flaw in Jewish thought. So. Yeah, it's, there's a forgetting of, of this figure who was forgotten. Mm-hmm. Or, or who, someone who was kind of cast out of the the society of the camps, and then there's there's a recasting out of that figure within critical discourses. Um, yeah, I mean, Gombin is not Jewish, but he mm-hmm. he um, you know he just undoes the Musulman, um, and I just really love the way Waelie beautifully like brings Musulman back as a as a as a figure who hungers and as a, as a, as a fleshly figure, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that, um, who's connected to other fleshly figures and, um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I, I want to ask, I think in terms of the title of the book and the fact that we just read about Niemand, um, and, and, and kind of bringing in a Gombin now, um, and Wahelier, as well as all of these other figures, I mean, we can talk about the whole intertextuality of this book. Um, but how are you thinking of the term no one? Um, especially against maybe this Agambenian um figure of the Musulman, um, as like the the complete witness. How are and I think also as a figure of negation, um, there is no one. Um, you mentioned in the in the somewhere in the text, um, like English doesn't have this or it's not as immediately thinkable um, in the sense that when you say no one, we imagine this kind of, there, there's nothing, there's nobody there. Um, whereas in, in German, Niemand can, is a figure and in Ceylon's corpus, you also have him directing speech towards Niemand. Um, that's a figure of God um, in, in his poems, in yeah. Niemand's Rosa, um, mm-hmm. Or when he says, like, no one prays to you, or we pray to you, no one. Um, and in French, you have personne, which can mean person, or it can mean no one. So it has that kind of double valence. Um, so how are you thinking of no no one in relation to a kind of a negation or negativity, as well as a figure who witnesses? Yeah, um, I mean, it's... For me, no one is like, you know, I guess I, I have done a lot of thinking about negation and um, I think of it again as a, as a place of limit that, that becomes threshold. So for me, a limit, a limit concept become a, is, is, isn't an end point. It's like a, a, a space for a threshold space for, you know, like a window, like going like that you can go through it. So, um, you know, uh, it's hard to retell the whole book but the yeah <laughs> the saying no to the to the one i mean i don't know maybe, maybe i should get into the monster a bit like because like the yeah i think that would be yeah interesting also in i forgot about this but also like the idea that it's it's not one um and you're bringing in moton there and the silva and and maybe we can think of it as a plurality yeah i mean that's i guess that's that's sort of the point of the book is to say no to the one to say no mm-hmm. to the self to say no to man capital M man and and the human um it's a kind of project about abolition of you know it's just in a larger larger sense um as you know thought through black studies 
and black study in the, in the Moton and Harney um, way that um, they theorize a kind of under common space. So for me, the, the, you know, if you, so it's like a, it's a monstrous poetics, right? So no one's witnessed a monstrous poetics. And it used to be, um, the book used to be called A Language No One Speaks, The Dangerous Perhaps of Monstrous Witness. And they thought it was too long, so I changed it. <laughs> um, but I'm, I guess I'm, I'm just always, I've been interested in the notion of the dangerous perhaps, or the perhaps, uh, the peut-être. So in peut-être in French, peut-être could be, maybe, by chance, you know, and um, that there's, that there's, so it's, I guess I'm, I'm just really influenced by a kind of secular Jewish messianic thought, which is um, that, you know, I mean, I don't believe like the Messiah may come, the Messiah might not come, but you better be ready. Um, but you, you know, you're, what you do now um, uh, to prepare or to be like to just to 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 relate is is important. Um, and so um, for me, the the monster is this is this, and the no one is the monster, right? Is uh, is this you know this figure that's you know, I guess if you think of monstrosity, it's like you know heterogeneous uh, a figure composed of heterogeneous parts, right? Like Frankenstein or whatever, you know, um, and an assemblage, right? And it's, it's not it's not an individuated one. It's 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 an entangled social non-figure, like just by nature, right? Like the head could come from somewhere else, the one arm could come from another being, you know, um, and um, so this this idea of this. Perhaps this dangerous, perhaps this this way of thinking about new ways of of becoming. Um, um, and you know, if you think of the different roots of the monster, like the monstrum, the this kind of atrocity, but also this marvel, this this impossibility, um, this kind of you know uh, perverted. Like I'm interested in perverted things. You know, um, I'm I'm a pervert. You know, um, and. Uh, but monster also includes like the warning and, 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 and you know monere and it also you know has a, a link to monstrare, which is really important for my book to show you know to to reveal something to point to show um, rather than to tell like if you want to think about in terms of standard creative writing class show not tell but um, and men the uh, you know Indo-European to think with so th- this figure is like is is all of these things for me and. And I, you know, I even go to demonstrate the demon who monstrates, and um, and so you know, there's there's different people who have written about different things, you know, related to this that are that are, that I that I gather together in my assemblage, and of course, like you know, my gathering together is my making, right? It's not um, that's how I'm showing, you know, like Benjamin a bit how he mm-hmm. how like the arcades project is like you know rag picking collecting. You know, I, I just need to show, you know, I need to bring together like a montage. So, you know, Benjamin, sorry, Walter Benjamin, he, um, you know, he talked about the monster as an un, unmensch, like an unman. And I didn't, I only touch on this because it's not that interesting to me, but, it, but like, in, in, you know, in one of his essays, he, the famous angel of history is actually a, you know, monstrous. It's like mm-hmm. a cannibal angel. You know, it's like these figures can change and, and, um, that's part, partly why I was interested in Sylvia Winter's demonic ground. Like again, demon is linked to the demonstration and this refusal of standpoint, this, this refusal of, <laughs> you know, as Sexton, Jerry Sexton says, like 
about you know a kind of abolition space um, as like there's no ground for identity. There's there's no ground to stand on. And and Moton Moton says a lot of beautiful things about not standing but falling and 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 you know undoing the notion of standpoint, which is for me I, okay. I'm a real associative thinker, so. I could be completely wrong. I could be totally misinterpreting some of the stuff I'm reading, but I don't care. I, I'm a reader and I'm making associative leaps. So for me, um, it's like, you know, the sexton, it's like, no, you know, uh, it, no claim. You know, self, he talks about selfless, landless existence. He's like, no argument. Um, and I'm really interested in that. Like, I, it's undo, it does undoes so much of what we're taught in academic circles and, you know, this whole idea of, the, of that you have one a singular argument and you're gonna and you're gonna prove it um so i say no to that and there's there's all sorts of no's you know i i spent a whole chapter just on no even though no isn't a word in the it's neither in the salon or in the translation right it is in that i just i interpret it as a word because no one in english is often spelled with the space between it you mm-hmm. know what i mean i have a whole chapter to the space between no and one yeah <laughs> you know that's there's no space in niman you know so it's just, that's just kind of, I don't know if I answered your question, but it's a, no, I think it, yeah. it gets around. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade Two. Play it now with Game Pass. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that one of the something that was so important you you quote um, Derrida. I I wish I remembered what it's like from one of those readings. That's I think not one of his most famous ones. Um, or I don't know. He just has so many. But he he talks about you how you cannot say here, this is our monster. You can't announce them without turning them into pets. And I think right. um, something that, that gets towards, which I, I want to drift towards in our conversation is kind of the unnameability in, or unnameability or, or you unspeakability of the monster. And I think, as you've said, and what's so apparent in your book is kind of where language is at a limit in terms of witnessing and, and where where you kind of have to screw it up in order to make it do anything at all. Um, I mean, like Elfriede Jelinek, um, who's a, who's a, a German writer or an Austrian writer writing in the German language. She, she talks about how in order to like, in order to make language tell the truth, you have to torture it. And I think that's something that, that Ceylon is doing to the German language. Um, it has to pass through what he says in the Meridian speech. It has to pass through the thousand darknesses of, of death bringing or a thousand darknesses of death bringing night um and and there's something else going on with that you engage with in in the black studies and the black theory scholarship that you're writing about especially with um like um Sadia Hartman and the scream of um Frederick Douglass's aunt um I think I, I want to just ask you about what you think how you're thinking about these limits and like what's the beyond the language and how that kind of testifies in a way that can't or testifies or witnesses or whatever word we want to use. What's the bearing witness in that? Yeah, that's a really complex question. It's, it's about like, you know, going beyond um, 
I was going to say the ocular in some ways, but it's, it, you know, because so much of witnessing is often about what you see, right? What you, mm-hmm. what you experience, yeah. But, um, you know, Fred Moten has been really important for me in thinking about listening as a, as a practice um, and his writing on, um, you know, like Abby Lincoln's scream and, in, in, you know, in a, in a particular piece as um, as a form of knowledge, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what the right word. I'm not going to say. I don't want to say a particular word because it's not like not. You know, because I want to undo knowledge too. But like, you know, it's kind of. Um, it, it's actually this is almost impossible for me to talk about because it is something that I go back to over and over again in the book, and I don't have an answer for, and I don't have a claim for, other than I I am against what Agamemnon says that the Muslim men, because they are um, on the verge of death, um, cannot speak. You know, I just. And in fact, he undoes it himself uh, at the end of the book of Remnants of Auschwitz, where the, the Muslim men do speak. And they say, you know, I was a Muslim man. There's a, there's a few instances of that. And Haley talks about this a bit, too. Um, so he kind of undoes himself. I don't. I, anyway, I, I, I'm interested in like going. Yeah, going I mean, I think that, that's but, that's a good point in the sense yeah. that I think that it, it comes with a very strict notion of what speaking is. Um, yeah. And. So I guess, yeah, that's that's part of the reason why I went into sort of some things around performativity and non-performance, which, again, was, I mean, influence, you know, whatever, by, like Butler and Austin or whatever, but then also by, by Fred, how he, 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 you know, wrote a, a, just a very important essay about blackness, blackness as non-performance and, but that, so, so, you know, I do theorize in the book about that no one bears, by saying no one bears witness for the witness, there is a performative aspect, right? That no one, like, and I, at one point I compare it to like Glenn Ligon's study for, studies for Frankenstein paintings where, where, you know, he's got a line from Frankenstein, you know, I, I, um, I can't remember the exact words, but I, you know, that I, I basically that the figure wanted to speak, but, but, but couldn't, you know, um, mm-hmm. but by saying that I want to speak, but can't you're speaking, right? You know what I mean? So that, that's, that's the kind of, so sometimes I wish to express my sensations in my own mode, but the uncouth and inarticulate sounds, which broke from me, frightened me into silence again. So that's the line from the, the book Frankenstein that Ligon mm-hmm. is quoting and the study for Frankenstein. And that's a, that's a, that I, I put that against no one bears witness, witness if you compare those two, right? Um, by, and also, of course, the Ligon painting itself by eroding itself is eroding its own witness, right? Through the, the black, um, uh, oh, what's he using? The oil stick, sorry, the oil stick getting you know, more and more congealed as the painting goes on and it, just the same line repeats. Um, it, it, it erodes its witnessing, right? Um, that that, that uh, no one does that, not, that, not line. No one bears witness for the witness, in my mind, the way I think um it 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 ends up bearing witness for it ends up bearing witness even though it can't bear witness it's an m slash possibility right um that that uh and it might just not be intelligible it might not be intelligible in the ways that you are taught you know that we are taught mm-hmm. intelligibility is and so you know hartman um you know how much she goes into the scream in Jesus objection, but in the when she talks about the the Douglas, the jargon and nonsense, the the songs of enslaved people, and how the jargon, quote unquote, jargon and nonsense actually speaks. Um, you know, it's just 
it's not it's not simply that these are coded language. It's, not, it's coded language. It's just a, it's 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 thinking through different ways um, that language uh, enacts itself. Um, uh, bears something, you know, like makes something as it, that 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 you know that it is that is poetic in that in that sense of how poesis for me the poetic is something that disrupts something is something that's perverted something that that you know like you know like I don't know that's why I'm interested in like yetzite like that these moments that jump up and grab you by the throat and and you're forced to rethink things. So. Yeah, I I I definitely. I get that interest. It's there's so many really good examples that you draw throughout your book. And I think one of my favorite ones that I think, I don't know, I think everybody should read it just because it's such a good experiment. Um, in Norbesa Phillips song, which is, it's so good. Um, I don't know if you want to, if you want to explain the, the conceit of the text, um, because I think it, it kind of gets at what you're talking about. Um, and I think, Something that I'm thinking of, and especially in my own research, is, you know, like Yoko Ono says, the destruction of art is also art. Um, but the destruction of language is also language. Or, or And maybe poetry, I mean, I don't want to be someone who says, like, I don't really always think you can say, like, this is poetry and this is not. Um, but I also think, you know, maybe I do want to have some kind of aesthetic standards and say, like, good poetry or, like, really good poetry enacts some kind of destruction or warping. Of language, and that's really what we're seeing in Philippe's text, Zong, as well as in Ceylon, as well as in a lot of um, like like what Hartman's doing with critical fabulation. Mm-hmm. Totally. So you wanted me to, yeah, if you would just say something about Zong and 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 the conceit of the text um, and how how it operates and how you're seeing it um, in relation to these these questions. Yeah, so Zong is a book that is is kind of like an exploded book made from um, the, the the words within a two page um, legal document that one of the only existing um, uh, legal um, decisions. Of course, in decision there has that Derridian notion of the cut that tears the wound um, uh, on uh, a uh, you know a insurance claim based on the throwing overboard of uh, at least 150 enslaved people from, from the ship, the Zong, called Zong, um, in 1781. And so, you know, the people who owned the slave, the enslaved people, um, sorry, and the ship, right? It's all about ownership. Um, they, they, it was an insurance claim. So one party thought that the other party owned, uh, owed the money. And uh, it's, you know, a disgusting piece of a thousand words or, or, or whatever it is um, in its dry legalese um, about people's lives. And, you know, Norpese, uh, you know, basically explodes this text. She, she takes uh, all the words and she creates, she creates other words from the words. First, she started out just using the words as is and started making poems and the first uh, movement of the book is is pretty much that of just like some of the words in it like lots of words are repeated like the and stuff like that um, and then she does a really interesting kind of I don't know boggle maneuver where she does words within words and creates she conjures um, new words and new and sh- new things through this 
through the through these new new configurations of letters that she creates. Um, and there's a there's a intensely spiritual quality to this. Of, of, there's a conjuring of of the of the bodies that are you know on the ocean floor um, up from this ship and. Um, the book itself, it's hard to explain over audio, is just is excluded. Yeah, it's something it's, it's you have to see. <laughs> it's an open open field, and there's there's a wave section where you can sort of see a wave, and there's just another section that's kind of like winds, and uh, lots of water, of course. It talks about as ex, ex aqua, this possibility of, 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 of pulling the bodies up from the ocean, which is, you know, impossible. But she does a naming of of, of of certain names at the bottom of the of the text and and the, anyway there's been a lot written about this book it's it's a book that's um going to you know survive uh history and i i just focused on one page which was this a section i focused on the last page of the of the mm-hmm. book um which was a printing error she, she deems it a printing error where um uh, several pages got layered on each other and I, I that's why I, I was interesting and interested in, in that as in relation to trans translation so um again my associative mind so from and and my like interest in etymology or whatever but tra- you know translate means to carry across to bear across and so you know this works for my bears chapter yeah. and um it's about the impossibility of of translation and 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 reading and what, what's possible. And it's something that I, that I've um, always been interested in. Like in my last book, uh, Janie's Arcadia, there, there I made, I, I make work, uh, I guess, you know, is a friend of mine. And, 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 and anyway, we have some similar practices of um, making some work from, I make almost all my work from, from existing texts. And um, I was making this book about, Teller colonialism and uh, and I looked at, and I was focusing on the area of Canada where my family you know came to, immigrated to and um, so I was using a lot of old texts like like books like the, I was using like these purple prose books about white women settlers and anyway in order to work with the text like just practically uh, I, you know as a PDF and I had to copy and paste text from it and then. What happens is because of OCR, because op, op, optical character recognition software mm. is used to do that, <laughs> it scrambles it up. Yeah. And, and, and especially if it's like an old book and there's like dirt or food or snot or something on the book, it it, it, it like screws up the words. So when you when I would copy and paste it, I get all this like junk language and or seemingly junk language or this these like it kind of looked like you know how you would write a swear word you know with like different um, diacritical marks and different um, yeah <laughs> you know, you know punctuate yeah so. Uh, and it's so interesting. It's called optical character recognition because I was um, I was taught this, a theme in the book was was undoing the politics of recognition and uh, anyway. But so there's this like recognition. That, so the form has to fit the content. That's what I was going to say earlier when we were talking about form. But anyway, um, so for me, I I love I love these languages. Like I love numbers too. I have another book where I use numbers in the in the language. I, I was using like a gematria, you know, Jewish mystical thing, but like a like a fake one, but um, uh, so there's numbers and letters. So I would, when I would do a reading, I would, I would try to pronounce this. Like I would, I would try to pronounce these strings of words, uh, of unpronounceable things. So I, but, um, and, 
But what what happened was it would un, it would totally like freak the audience out, right? They it would they would wake up, <laughs> you know, they would listen. Yeah. You know what I mean? I can imagine. And, I, <laughs> and I'd be like, you know, you know, French quotes, uh, exclamation mark, you know, and and then I and I, you know, pronounce these half words and. But for me, it was a kind of conjuring. It was a conjuring of some of the um, some of the horror at, at the at the um, root of the you know of the project I was working on, which was acknowledging like missing and murdered indigenous the, the you know the catastrophe of missing and emerging murdered indigenous women and children in Canada. And, you know, it, it and and settler responsibility for that. It was like I you, you find ways to use form to to make something happen. That's why I'm interested in the poise and poise. That's what poet, the poetic can do. And, and Norpeze does that brilliantly in the book. And so, yeah, I concentrate on this last page, which is basically unreadable because, but I'm interested in the unreadable. I'm interested in what it bears. So. Yeah. I think something that I'm interested in is, is that is when you're reading. Um, and I, I think I had to read Zong for a class and there's, when you get to that last page, as well as a lot of the pages before, um, you don't really realize like how much, of poetic reading especially is like choices that you make and decisions. Um, and when you get to that last page and you're struck with these words, you, you still have to read them. So you have to make all these like grammatical and lexicographical decisions in that moment. And I mean, decision, such a Derridian term, but you have to say like, I'm, this is what I'm choosing to read. Um, and, and what comes out loud? What, what doesn't, what should I say? And I think you, you talk at, a little bit about the exclamation point at the end of the title um, in Philip's text. And like, do I say, is it like Zong or is it Zong exclamation point? Um, and it was, it was, it conjured up this, this great essay that I, I read by Aris Fioretos on, on Paul Ceylan. And he has a, a poem called Engfurong in which, um, what are they called? Asterisks are a huge part. And he asks like, do you, what do you do with the asterisk? How, what what am I supposed to do? Do I pause longer? Do I say asterisk out loud? And I I think what it, it really does is say that there's there's something in the in the poetry that that takes you over as a reader and forces you to come to a decision and to look at the text. Um, and I think that's a big part of of testimony and, and witness. Um, of, and, tra- of and translation too, right? Yeah. Like the choice. Like in the in Zong, you have to also make a choice whether or not you read left to right or up and down or diagonal, and you and you have to decide to like let that go. And so you're let going linearity, you're let going of history, like the yeah. you know, the, the notions of history. I, I do I believe in this stuff. I believe that if you if you could read that page and and, and you know I I always teach Zong and and we do collective readings of it and 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 you know if you can um, if you can if the if if you can embody that, if you can embody that undoing of um, linearity, something something can shift. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I'm not saying you know, I'm not saying it, it creates revolution. <laughs> I'm saying that 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 is the one that is one thing that that artwork can do is is to is to shift shift the molecules in your brain a bit so that it, that that it might if it shifts your perspective, it can shift other things too. It can shift the way you relate. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if this is, I don't, I, you're here with me so I can ask you, uh, but there's, uh, not to put too much into the authorial intentional fallacy, yeah. but the, the idea of, of not one, like just the act of reading. I mean, there's a whole lineage of, of thought that's, you know, 
and sometimes I'm a, I mean, I'm a grad student who did Zoom classes for a whole year. So it was, it was very much like reading is a solitary thing. You sit by yourself and you read a book. But in another sense, you, when, especially when you read poetry in, in kind of this, um, this genre, if I, I don't want to encapsulate it all within a genre, but there's something going on here. It, you aren't one. There's a, there's a text that kind of set, that has its own authority that has its own, um, I, I guess I would say like resonance or power that says like, I'm giving you myself and then you have to meet me somewhere and where you meet me is a decision on your own. Um, so there's a, there's a not oneness or a no oneness to just the act of reading poetry in general. Yeah. And, the, and even like you can think of simple ways people have thought about this of like, you know, that the, that the reader becomes a producer of meaning rather than a consumer. So it kind of undoes capitalist notions of, you know, that you're, this book is serving you, you yeah. know, and you're, and you're, you're consuming it. So that could be very difficult for, for readers. They want, they don't, they don't want to have to produce meaning, right? A lot of pe- most people don't want to, um, they want the poem and so much of poetry is about producing very linear meaning like with you know like like a, like the bulk of poetry is so there there are lots of other poetries that um that do this and not and that's why i'm also interested in like poetics work so i call you know i call the book a poem but it's it's a book of poetics and poetics itself is something that undoes categories right it undoes what is poetics you know it's not aristotle it's, it's something else it's it's, a, yeah. it's like something that brings philosophy and poetry together and and you know fucks with it all and and people have you know people really react people can really react to they get angry when they don't understand something and like you know i just keep thinking like you think of like um glisson edward glisson like you know on the right to opacity and and he talks about that as like knowledge or or comprehension right in french right in french comprendre is is to take you know to take for yourself which is all part of this you know, this is capitalist, white supremacist, Europe, Eurocentric notion of what, you know, how we're supposed to make it in the world, right? How we're supposed to make it and what our journey is supposed to be and where we're supposed to end up, and, you know, and how successful we're, you know, all these ideas. I wonder, you know, so many people like, like Harney and Moten and, you know, lots of people, Gerard de Silva and the plenum and like her notion of the plenum. And so like, you know, it's, it's uh, even Hartman on the chorus as like, thinking of other ways of being and being together, other ways of being together, the uh, other socialities, other, other senses of time too. That's what yeah. I'm interested yeah. in. So, yeah. um, well, I, I, you, you bring up a word, you said the word revolution and, and that, that caught <gasps> my eye. That, well, it didn't catch my eye. It caught my ear. Yeah. Um, but I, in the book, you say that um, poet or, there is no revolution of poetic language. And, and I, I'm wondering there if there's a, a slight nod to Kristeva. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was just a pun. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, there's no revolution of poetic language that can only happen on the street. Poetry is not enough. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, in relation to maybe this notion of poetics um, that you bring up, um, what is how is poetry or how are you thinking of poetry in relation to revolution? If it's, if it's not enough, um, does it get us towards there? Like um, what's, what's the 
kind of the topology or the relationship or constellation that you're thinking of in this sense. Yeah, I mean, I literally was just punning a bit on the on Chris Davis' title, but um, and I was just, I mean, I just had done a, a little rant on Heidegger that I, I could have easily just cut from the whole book and it would have been fine. So it was just, I just can't stand the way that poetry is ex- seen as this exalted language. I, I don't believe in any exalted language. So, um, so yeah, and uh, I mean, I don't know, like. So, okay, like I already just talked a little bit about revolution. I mean, I do believe that if we change, we, we do change our molecules, if all, enough of us change our molecules, there will be forms of revolution that happen, like a kind of commons, you know, that we'll, we'll change our relating to each other, that, you know, that, um, you know, change our ways of, of supremacy, right? This idea that I'm more smart than you are, or, you know, you're better than I, you know, all the bullshit that happens every day and all, you know, how power flows every day, right? Um, Now, um, and I also believe that these other worlds already exist. So it's not like there's, it's it's just, you know, like we're at the end of the world now, but we're at the end of this particular end of the world. And, um, and, you know, it's kind of like, I, I, I totally agree with you. Like I'm, Ever since the beginning I started writing, I've always believed in creative destruction. That, that's sort of, that's just, I've always written about, that's just like, yeah. So we're, so it's this constant process of um, negativity, you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could get into Wilderson if you want. But anyway, I don't, I, I just, you know, you talked about Asimov poetics. So for me, I just, it was just really fascinating to me that, so I, so Joan Retallick, who came up with that term poetics is, from my world, <laughs> the world of experimental poetics, poetry, just, you know, she's a, a lovely, brilliant, you know, four person, like elder in, in my world. And um, her notion of poetics has been very influential for lots of people. Um, for me, and, and I was just really fascinated that, that Denise Ferrard Silva um, took the term and, and, um, is, 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 is taking her own spin on it. And so they're both influenced by um, chaos theory and quantum physics and uh, trying to think of a, like a complex realism. And um, so for me, though, I don't, I don't know if you know this, I don't get into it too much in the book because I'm so against ethics as a term and against Levinasian ethics. So it's like I have a, like a aversion to the term itself, ethics. So, you know what I'm saying? So it's not like, um, I, I'm just making these associative links. I, I, I think it's great, like how um, I love I love what what both Vitalik and Verda Silva are doing. Um, and I guess you know I'm sort of sliding away from what you're asking about witnessing because if you notice, like I don't have a particular like thing about witnessing. Like I don't, I don't have like like as I said at the very beginning of the book, it's like yeah, I'm not that interested. <laughs> I keep saying that I'm not that interested. Sorry, I'm being very negative, but um, that you know that. I don't want to rehash the boring poetry of witness, it, it, but I was interested in how the witness as a figure uh, was taken up. Right. And, but you know, whatever my undoing on Gauman, but you know, or I like, I love how Nate back, talks about, you know, um, uh, you know, eroding witness that you can, he has a poem, the poet or the poem is witnessing and eroding witness at the same time, which is, this is this creative destruction. We're already, we've already been talking about. So that's, 
that's what I'm in, I'm interested in. Um, I don't have. I'm sorry to say. I'm sorry. I don't have a poetic a poetics of witnessing. I don't have a poetics of witnessing. I I was in my um, PhD defense. Uh, one of the examiners asked me, like, you know, what is what is Rachel Zolf's poetics? <laughs> like. What? Like I, I don't have a poetic. Like I don't. I can't answer those questions. I don't. Know, I think I'm like constitutionally unable, and it made me sound like like a weirdo. But I don't know. What, what, like I, I'm bringing together certain artists and writers in this book, and um, and they speak to what I'm, you know, the different ideas that I'm bringing to the floor. But I wouldn't say that like these writers, and particularly because I write against some of them. Like it, you know. It, these aren't my poetics, and I would never. I if you ask me what my poetics is in terms of as a poet, I don't. What am I going to say? I don't know. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, I, I'm interested in like these ideas, limit concepts. That's one thing. That's one way of talking about it. But it's only one thing. Like, I, I, I already just talked about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't need to say it again. It's not that interesting. Yeah, I think I think that's I think there's there's a section in your book. Um, I don't know, I or a sentence or whatever. I and I, I, I just eat it up whenever someone is like, "This is an essay," and then reminds me that you know, essay means to try. Um, and you, you say this. I'm, I love that. I anytime someone goes back to Montagna and is like, "This is a, this is just an attempt." Um, I love that, and I love what you, you went even a little further and said that your text is kind of aware of its own failure, or is wearing it on its sleeve, or is is. I guess, in a sense, bears witness to its own failure. Um, and I think, you know, the the failure of witnessing is always caught up in the possible, in witnessing. The possibility is guaranteed by the impossibility of something. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that maybe that is something that goes throughout the book, this this idea that there's not something concrete. If, if it was there, then it, it might not even, it might not show up if it was too concrete, if it was too um, visible. Um, and I think, you know, what, what it's similar to like what Hartman's doing in, in critical fabulation, um, in Venus and two acts where she's talking about like making something up out of, out of the violences of history that leave Venus, um, the slave girl out. Um, it, it involves a different type of listening. Your, your poetics involves a different type of writing or a different type of reading. Um, and I think that that's, something that goes along with the rest of the the poetry or the text that you're going into or reading in, in your book. Mm. Oh, that's nice. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I liked it. I don't know. I was just complimenting you for, for a moment. Um, but it is so, it is so important. This kind of the style that you can kind of draw out of, I don't know, of maybe listening yeah. into the lacunae of history, of, of seeing something that that's not there, of seeing something in its absence, of seeing the no one, of inviting it to presence without kind of, I don't, I don't want to say metaphysics of presence, because how could I even explain that in a podcast, um, but some of the violence of presence and, and how to undo that and how to go against that and maybe see something in it's not being there. Yeah, and that's linked to what I said earlier around the not making a claim or the you know, the sexton on the landless, you know, selfless landless existence. Um, I, it, it's frustrating. I'm, I, I got, like, I, even my instinct when you wanted to do the interview and I was like, okay, I, I don't know what to say because I don't want to, I'd rather just hear what you had to say because I, I you know, I wrote, I don't want to explain. I don't want to explain what the book, like, I, I, I just want you to read it and 
you know, you get what you, you get what you get out of it. And you might hate, hate part of it. You might, there might be just one little half of a sentence that takes you somewhere new. And that's exciting for me, yeah. you know? And I think that, um, well, that's the whole form of the tie. I mean, it's the, that's the title. Um, and I will say, uh, I mean, maybe I, I'll explain the text to everyone, to the listeners, but it's, um, I felt so like, um, seen almost to use that kind of language of how many quotation marks are just in this text. It's, it's great. The whole idea, it's, it's an assemblage. It's, um, I mean, you talk about it all. Let let me find the quote, um, where you say that, um, it being no one's witness enacts a monstrous assemblage composed of heterogeneous strands of thinking that brings into opposition concepts, methodologies from Black studies and Black study, 20th century European philosophy, queer theory, experimental poetics. Um, I don't, I love, it's just, you have so many of your own words, but so many of other other people's words. And I think that's one of the more beautiful parts of the text in the sense that it's it's a collection in, the, in that Benjaminian sense. And I, I, I think I want to, I want to ask you a question of, you, you write that something happens um, when all of these people are brought together. Um, can you say more about what that something is? Maybe I think it's the experimentality or the essay quality of this. Yeah, when we were speaking before, you mentioned um, that it was, you know, that it was a term that I used, de- dehiscence, and and you, and you said cohabitation, and um, and I use that term dehiscence on purpose um, as a term that Moton uses in it. It describes a, you know, a wound that is sewn up, but but that is still that the wound is still weeping through, uh, like the sewn together parts. And another way of thinking of dehiscence is it's like when a seed pod bursts open. There's a there's a bursting that happens. And I'm 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 just really interested in these these like points of contact and seepage and wound. Um, and so I've like I mentioned already earlier that I make I make my last few books from other texts and so I, but I guess the, the the I've been really influenced it's kind of whatever it's just funny in a way but I've always been interested in like Russian formalist filmmaking like mont like the notion of the montage shock effect um which in some classic you know early 19 uh you know 20s films um an example would be like, you know, so the montage, like it's like the jump cut, this notion of the jump cut, it's like a very harsh cut in film. Um, so you'd have like a crowd scene on the, a, a revolution on the, on the steps, uh, you know, on the street. And then it would cut to like a domestic scene of a, a woman in the kitchen with a knife or whatever. And like, back, back, back. like, it's like the shock effect of these, these images like being layered upon each other, um, these disparate images. And um so, and in, you know, Russian formalism, it's like a specific political method to wake people up. Like it's a specific, like that's what it was used for. Um, and so I, you know, I, and so, I, and if you think of montage, it's actually, well, in film, it's 2, 2D, right? There's, it's like a, mm-hmm. even though it, it, it as projected, it's, it becomes, well, it's, yeah, it's still 2D, two-dimensional. Um, so I, I, over the years, I, I switched a bit more to a sense of assemblage. So assemblage, um, has lots of meanings, but anyway, just in this particular meaning, it's like more of a 3D thing. Like, you know, if you have like a painting with like, you know, you, you, you stick a piece of newspaper on it and something else sticking out of it, then it's kind of an assembly just comes into the, it comes into space, 3D space. Um, 
So for me, like, yeah, there's in my, uh, my last two books, that, other than this, this, and including this one, I went, but there, there was like, literally in my last two books, there was like hardly any language from me, me, my belly in it. It was, it was all in the, all the languages is assembled, you know, from other sources, from research sources. Um, but the putting together is me, is my voice, right? Mm-hmm. I, I just don't, just in my own practice, I don't, um, I guess it's like, you could call it eco-poetic or whatever. I'd never really thought of it that way, but it's like, I don't, I don't need to make new language. Like I, there's so much language already out there. So, um, and, and I have a kind of deconstructive practice and um, I'm interested in the document. And anyway, it's just my method of writing. And I love how Ferreira de Silva talks about um, a kind of fractal thinking, which is kind of a four-dimensional thinking. Um, and again, so I'm, anyway, that, that idea really influenced me. Um, and so if the different thinkers are placed side by side, so I say literally something, something like something, a thing, right? The thing, you know, you must know about the thing dusting, (laughs) like the, the, this monstrous possibility of, you know, this strange zug, this thing in the, in the, in the other space, um, uh, you know, something new, a new, something new can happen. Um, you know, again, the molecules, your brain can change some, like this new monstrous thing can emerge. It can show itself. Right. Um, you know, it's like on the simplest level, it'd be like, Oh, I never thought of how what that person says relates to what that person said. You know what I mean? Like, like even if they use like one word that's similar, you know? Um, yeah. and I, again, I, along what we're talking about, about cohabitation, it, it gives the reader more agency to create connections to, you know, like, if I, and I, you know, I've gotten flack about this because I, 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 like that, uh-huh. like often, often I'll like, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll layer the quotes. Right. And, and I got flack that I'm not like making any connection between them. It's like, like a, uh, that it was like an undergrad essay, you know, like, you know, I'm, you know, you know, whatever, that's just a bit insulting. Like I, I'm doing this deliberately. I'm literally like leaving you to, to work with those themes and how bloody they are, you know? Um, yeah. So it's part of the monstrosity of my process. And that's why it's called like a monstrous poetic, you know, it's, it's a process. It's a, the book is so much about process and it, it has its own, it's like its own, it's, it's machine creating its own other little machines as it, as it goes along. Um, you know, it's, so it's like, it's like showing over saying like what you said about Benjamin, the rag picking, um, or Deleuze talks about irrational cuts and, you know, it's something I've talked about a lot in terms of my poetry. Uh, I, uh, I used to talk about like mad affects, like generating kind of ungovernable affects in the reader, like it, it's through uh, in the reading or listening experience. And, and so this, this book's no different. And um, so yeah, like in, in terms of cohabitation, I find it impossible to categorize the book beyond just calling it like poetics. Um, it's like, you know, it's, it's like it has a particular meaning for me of this kind of weird thinking poets can do. Right. But for the purposes of marketing a book with an academic press, I had to name these disciplines, right. You got, you know, that's what we're quoting yeah. is all these disciplines, but I, I don't even believe in these disciplines. I'm sorry. So, so I, you know, as a separate, like for me, they're all links. So are they yeah. all poetic? They're all poetics for me. Yeah. So my whole practice, like, you know, is about querying form and gen- genre. That's, that's really my, my whole practice is about that. And even designation, right. Even the name I'm against the proper, and you know, just like Derrida. <laughs> And, and I'm inviting the reader to do, to do the same. Yeah. Well, I, I can say as a reader, I was thinking um, it's it's like a Mallarmean almost project in the sense that 
from Ancuda de, uh, like the nothing took place except perhaps a constellation. Um, and maybe we can, maybe we can tweak it a little. I don't know. Maybe, there are so many different ways I'm, I'm thinking immediately, but like there's, there's the, there's something took place except perhaps a constellation or like no one took place except perhaps a constellation or nothing mm. took place except perhaps something. Um, and I think it's a really, it's a really, I don't know. It is a, it's a resonant, it's, it's a powerful way to kind of present these, these texts together and not always make a connection. Um, and it's to do something that, that forces the reader. Um, we're talking about the text having agency. I think this is one of the ways that your text brings that authoritative power to say, you make a decision now. It's, it's, it's not always um, me telling you, um, and I think this is something that Foucault did uh, where he, he, in an interview, he was like, I'm not a philosopher. Um, I'm not going to tell you what to do. And and so what, uh, what is he? Um, this is something Lynn Huffer in, in a new book talks about. He's a poet. He just, he's presenting you. He's offering a new possibility of, of being in the world. Um, and it undoes the notion of authority that you brought up a couple of times, right? Like the author, the author mm-hmm. has a root, has a root in witnessing to Octor, but, mm-hmm. but it's not, a, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm a maker. I'm, I'm not, I'm not an authority. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Well, as a maker, um, I think I have a, a, a final question, which is, um, what are you thinking about now? Um, if you're thinking about anything at all. <laughs> oh, um, well, I, I uh, right at the very beginning of the pandemic, March 4th, uh, our, ba- our baby arrived. And so um, uh, March 4th, 2020. So I, it's been all baby all the time for the past <laughs> 18 months um, and also getting this book out that was just really hard to do um, with the baby around. So I, I've been a bit baby brain dead. I was also getting a, a book of uh, reissue of my friend Akila Oliver's first book. She said dialogues, flesh memory, and that also came out last year. And so I am a little brain dead, but I, I, I have been, um, Thinking a bit about like you know I do I do feel like this book even though it's not not very obvious but it it is a culmination of my 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 thinking for a long time and and so with the with with it um, I, I uh, after it I've, I've I've gone back to some of my you know really my influential first first people I read like because um, I'm I'm you know uh, you know I'm secular and all that but I'm just really influenced by Jewish thought. I'm just. It's just like, and what, whatever that means. It's kind of like, what, what does black thought mean, right? Um, Jewish thought is so broad, um, but um, there's a lot of lot of writing uh, on the limit, on the on the notion of the limit. Anyway, um, I've gone back to like Ebon Jabez's book, The Book of Questions. Was a, was a, this is a very so yeah, uh, very good. Form, formative book for me, and um, and I'm doing a kind of radical translation procedure on it and thinking about how I guess you know because like I say that no one's witnessed you know I'm bringing together um the Nazi Holocaust and yeah you know the other ongoing disasters of this world like a couple others like transatlantic slavery and afterlives and you know ongoing colonialism and um I'm just and through this radical translation procedure just thinking of how to um bring that disaster that he's writing about in conversation with these other disasters. And one of the ways I'm doing it is through through language, through 
other other languages um, than French or English. And so I started working on that. But I that sounds any, so interesting. Any energy on it? <laughs> Sorry to say. <laughs> well, I hope you get some. That I I love Chavez. Um, yeah. Com- underrated. I I I think I. I don't know. I've given out a copy of the book of questions to to many different people. Yeah. Um, and then always been like, give it back. You have to give it back because I have to reloan it out to the next person that I'm that I'm telling it about. Um, yeah. But I, I look forward to that whenever it comes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for talking today. Um, this was such an interesting conversation, and I I think it's given a lot to me to think about as well as hopefully to our listeners. Um, and I, I will have to return to the book and return to everything I've read and, and think more about it. Thanks so much, Brett. You brought, you brought lots of great questions. <laughs> so once again, um, this was Rachel Zolf talking about their new book, um, No One's Witness, A Monstrous Poetics, which is out through Duke University Press. Um, thank you for listening. I'm Britt Edelin, your host for the new book's network, um, the channel in literary studies. Until next time. <laughs>